Zegel. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Hey, if you if you didn't catch my show last week, and I know there was holidays going on, I think I was preempted on WBAI. I have to encourage you to go back and look at um, either the video that's up on Facebook or or, or YouTube. I think I got up on. Um, or just listen to the audio. It's available as a podcast. It's aver- available on the um, the archives uh, of WBAI and WPFW. It is a really good show with a really good interview with my my friend Peter Dorico, um, uh, the author of uh, uh, the Federal Anti Indian Law: The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples. We cover some rather significant issues today and talk about how it's related to not only the, the long bygone past, but even connecting it a little bit to the uh, Osage murders uh, that um, the uh, movie killer uh, movie and book Killers of the Flower Moon is about. So I encourage you to, uh, to check out that show. If you haven't um, at your leisure, it's available. You know, this is kind of on demand. You can, you can catch it anytime you want, but if you didn't catch it, I, I really ask that you do it because you, I realized with the holiday and everything, I did post it a little bit early just in case, you know, people could find the time to watch or listen before uh, everybody did all their holiday stuff. But um, I do want to remind people that we are um, at the end of the month. We are the our special month, <laughs> National Native American Heritage Month is uh, is pretty much in the can. And um I gotta say, I still don't feel real special about it, but uh, you know, they 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 make the proclamation every year. We just don't see a whole lot of movement on on major issues. Um, but I'm here to talk about that stuff, and that's why uh, it's so important that you, the listeners, both in New York City on WBAI and, and in Washington on WPFW, you support the stations that carry this program, and. You know, like my voice is different than most, and there are other native voices on on radio and on television. There are those iconic guys that uh, always get called upon for, you know, for some sort of commentary. Um, and I don't think that I'm extreme by uh, in by any means, but I don't pull any punches. I'm not trying to um, swoon anybody with my depth of knowledge, or I'm, I'm trying to just educate people. And, and really give the hard truths to some of the issues that we face. And I'm going to talk about some of that today. But um, uh, I, I do have to say it's imperative that you as listeners of WBAI and WPFW support the station. So uh, let me give it out. Um, here's, the, here's the pledge line for, for New York, for WBAI. It's 212-209-2950 or go online to give to WBAI.org. If you're listening in Washington, D.C., and I hope that you are, uh, the number to call is 202-588-9739, or you can go online to wpfwfm.org, and you can either punch in slash donate or just follow the tabs to, uh, to donate. It is really important that, uh, that people realize that we are almost solely listener-supported radio. So we, we really do count on your contributions to these stations. And look, as you well know, I'm going to do something every week, but the the work that I do that goes up as a podcast or a video, you've got to look for that. And the thing about being on the radio is, and, and Michael G. Haskins is always quick to tell people the difference between narrow casting and broadcasting. Look, if you're putting up podcasts and videos, you're narrow casting because people got to look for you. But broadcast, 
that's where you can put the signal out there, and some people are going to catch you by, by chance. And, and I've had a few callers over the years who called in and said, I've never really listened to your show, but I caught it on the radio, and uh, I wanted to call in. I'm, I'm always happy when I hear that. I hope that when they hear it once, they, they come back and they listen again. But I also hope that as you as listeners, that you spread the word. And even if you don't 100% agree with the stuff that I say, at least communicate <clears throat> to your friends, to your neighbors, to your family, that there is a voice out there that's unlike most of the other voices on radio. And look, I may not be as polished as, uh, as some radio show hosts. I, I'm a one-man show here. I don't have a staff collecting my information for me. <clears throat> I'm not scripted. Uh, it's totally freeform radio. Uh, but I can speak honestly, thoughtfully, and with a fair amount of background and information to support what I'm talking about. So uh, again, I ask that you support the radio station, uh, stations, uh, WBAI and WPFW. We are closing out uh, November. We're heading into uh, the, the last month of the year. And look, earlier this week, it was uh, what they call Giving Tuesday. If you didn't give to WAI or WPFW, yeah, you can still give on Thursday. Yeah, and, you can, and actually, you can do it whether we're in a fun drive or not. So I ask that you do so. Um, again, can't emphasize enough how important it is that if you didn't catch last week's show, that you do so. Uh, Peter DeRico, uh, who, who is a fine lawyer, uh, he teaches law at the uh, University of Massachusetts at, at Amherst, and uh, he was a great guest. I mean, we covered a lot of stuff, um, and it's it, for me, and I'm not looking for validation necessarily, but to hear somebody from another profession like the legal profession, which I like, which many of us are pretty critical of, but to hear a lawyer come on and say many of the same things, but also have that legal background to cite cases and to cite dates and and decisions and and quote judges and that kind of stuff i mean i do a fair amount of that but peter dorico he he blows the door off of me when it comes to being able to cite this stuff and he was a great guest i look forward to having him having him back and um uh and and you should too and you're only gonna look forward to it if you heard it the first time so uh so please do check out the show so there's, there's oftentimes a lot of conversation. In fact, even Peter Dorico mentioned it last, last week. He talked about, um, uh, what is that? There's a word for it, something, something POC. Um, people of color, I don't know, Reggie, what's, what's the, the acronym they have for indigenous people and, and people of color? Do you know what that is off the top of your head? Yeah, I don't know. If you, I, anyway, but uh, 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 BIPOC maybe? Or something like that. But Peter Dorico cautions people to try to lump all people together. And it's not because we don't have some shared experiences, okay? We, we, we do. And certainly Native people and Black people in particular, and of course that, that POC part is people of color. But when you throw us all into the same mix, it looks like we're a homogenous group, and we're not. And I'm not saying that we're antagonistic with each other, but even though we have shared experiences like slavery and oppression and racism and all that other stuff, our origin stories are different and our destinations are different. And I think that's the important part that, that uh, Peter tries to make. And, I, and I've talked about it before, and I'm going to talk about it today. Our goal as Native people is not for equality under the U.S. Constitution. We're not fighting for our civil rights or our constitutional rights or even the so-called treaty rights. No, those three expressions, civil rights, constitutional rights, and treaty rights, I have no use for any of those as it relates to us. I'm not saying fighting for civil rights if you're an American or constitutional rights 
I, I think that's fine to fight for those things. Treaty rights is a problem is a word an expression I have problems with anyway, because treaties don't give us rights. And they don't enshrine our rights. There are certain most of most treaties took something away. So when I hear people say, honor the treaties, honor the treaties, I don't know, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Because most of those treaties are not honored, even though they are disproportionate, they are not level, they are not you know, symmetrical. They, they usually took something away. And what's left behind sometimes in the language of those treaties suggests that that's all we have left. That if we don't have a defined right established, asserted, and guaranteed in those treaties, then it doesn't exist. So we can be talking about 1794, and so we can't be, you know, if you don't have any special rights to the airwaves. Airwaves didn't exist as far as 1794 is concerned, or radio, um, the tobacco industry, uh, gambling, I mean, uh, auto fuel, all the things that, that we're involved in today. Income tax didn't exist in 1794. So when people say, well, you don't have that guaranteed in treaty, yeah, we have to read those things differently. The question is, did we give something up? And were those treaties even legitimate if, the other, if, if they aren't being honored by the, the dominant party? So, yeah, I have no use for that expression, treaty rights, and, and I don't care to spout, you know, uh, remembrances and, and honor Indian treaties and, or any of that other stuff. No, that's not for me. What we're fighting for is sovereignty. And sovereignty isn't our defense. It's what we defend. We're fighting for our autonomy and our distinction. We're fighting, there's an expression that is really only unique to, to indigenous people for the most part, and it's called decolonization. I mean, look, again, if you move to this country, willingly or unwillingly, so, so you're dragged in chains, you know, uh, in the slave trade, or whether you migrated to this country for the benefits that the country has, not just the land, but the country then you're bound by those laws. You're bound by that constitution, but you should also be protected by it. That's not what we're saying as native people. I'm saying the constitution doesn't apply to us. Now, I'm not saying we're above the law or we're below, the, I'm not saying any of that stuff. I'm just saying we weren't written into it. We were actually excluded from the constitution, even in the language of the constitution where they mentioned native people. We're mentioned three times in the constitution. I've said this before, but I'll bring it up again. We're mentioned in uh, the executive clause, the, the clause that give the president's power, and there it's the treaty clause. And this is the president shall have the power to, uh, to negotiate treaties or enter into treaties with foreign nations and Indian tribes. And of course that re requires some approval from the Senate and that kind of thing. But, but it's an executive privilege or it's an executive power. That's, that's the, uh, the treaty clause. The other one is the apportionment clause. In the apport apportionment clause, and this one's always problematic because it also reduces black people to less than a human being because it's, uh, what is it, four-fifths or three-fifths? I don't remember, but it's a, it's a fraction of what, a, what a, a white man is gonna be. That's how a black man will be counted. Now, they don't have the right to vote, but they'll, they'll be enumerated for the purposes of designating uh, congressional representation. But clearly in the apportionment clause of the Constitution, they say excluding Indians. And they say Indians not taxed, which we weren't taxed, but so excluding Native people. So we were not a part. We, we are not um, taxable. We were not counted as, uh, uh, even if they counted us in the census, we weren't counted for enumeration of representation or, and of course, if not representation, not for, you know, any, you know, collective benefit and that kind of stuff. We, we weren't counted in that way in the Constitution. The third place that we're mentioned in the Constitution is the Commerce Clause. And this is the one that's tricky. 
because you know we we kind of ignore the first two, right? Because treaties aren't being made anymore. Somehow um, Congress, in some real hail mary of a of a play, managed to strip away a presidential power, which is almost completely taboo, right? But, it, but Congress stripped away the president's ability to enter into treaties with native people. So the treaty clause is essentially dead, uh, at least as, as it relates to native people. I mean, they can still use the have treaties with other nations. Um, and of course the apportionment stuff, we, we ignore, you know, both the, you know, the, the four-fifths compromise or three-fifths compromise, and we, we ignore all that stuff and, and the fact that we're excluded. We don't, but some people try to ignore it. But the Commerce Clause, and, and this is what it says. It says, Congress shall have the power to regulate commerce in and among several states. In other words, interstate commerce. That's Congress has that power. With foreign nations and with Indian tribes. Not of, with. In fact, we're mentioned in the same la language as foreign nations, but separate. Because we aren't foreign nations. We are here. We're, this is our land. So nothing in that subjects us, and, and, and again, let me re reiterate this. What it's saying is Congress has the power to regulate Americans, U.S. citizens engaged in commerce between states with foreign nations and with Indians. That's what the, that's what the, uh, the, the Constitution says. It doesn't say that they have the power to regulate our lives. Yet this notion, and we talked about this with Peter DeRico, you know, and it, it's in his book, it's really defined well, that this notion that Congress has plenary powers, which means ultimate powers over Native people, is BS. It's simply not true. And, and for the, um, so the Supreme Court to have established this notion of the, this plenary powers doctrine is false. It's, it's, in fact, even Clarence Thomas, of all people, rejects the notion that Congress was granted plenary powers over the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty and Indian affairs in the U.S. Constitution. He challenges that. He, not because he doesn't think they should have the power. He says he doesn't see it in the Constitution. He thinks they have to create a definitive law or do something that asserts that. And of course, in order to do that, you have to somehow assert that you have the, the power and authority to do that in the first place. You know, so you either have to somehow beat us farther into submission to make us surrender ourselves to the United States, do something definitive like, definitively like um, agreeing that all the lands that the United States claims that we are, what, divesting ourselves from? And of course, we're not going to do any of that stuff. So it's pretty problematic. So when we talk about decolonization, and that's why it's, we mean unraveling ourselves from that system. It doesn't mean, I, I, some people interpret this in different ways. That it means that you, you know, you don't, I don't know that you don't shop or you don't, I, I think, I think un, you know, untangling ourselves from the capitalist system is, is a part of decolonization. Some people say you don't celebrate Thanksgiving and Christmas. And, and while I agree that those holidays are a part of, you know, some of the colonial oppression, especially Thanksgiving, um, and Christmas is a Christian holiday. So I think the idea of decolonization is to strip us away from these, you know, these, these church, you know, these religious um, sacraments and that kind of thing. But let's be honest. I mean, you know, Christmas now uh, it gets wrapped up with all of the other year-end holidays and your beginning holidays. And so that's why people say happy holidays instead of just Merry Christmas. It's that whole war on Christmas thing. 
By the way, did you see? <laughs> did you see that the Christmas tree fell over at the White House? <laughs> that war on Christmas, apparently, the climate is uh, engaged in that one as well. So, <laughs> so there we have it. Um, but anyway, I, I hate to make make fun of everybody's Christmas tree, but um, no. So, so when we talk about decolonization. We are talking about unraveling ourselves from the systems of oppression. Now, that's not just declaring independence. I mean, that's, you know, that could be part of this idea of decolonization, but part of it is just simply not buying into it, you know, and pushing back on the powers that the federal government and state governments try to assert over us. That's why I talk so much about the gaming law, and that's why I talk about these racist policies that the United States and the, the member states have uh, had developed towards Native people. Yeah, you know, I think it's really, really important that people understand when we talk about decolonization, it is a completely different fight than one of civil rights and constitutional rights and, and frankly, treaty rights. Because uh, you know, let me get back on that. Treaties were all fraud. There's no question that every treaty negotiated by the United States was a stopgap measure that they never intended to honor. In fact, the belief always was, and there's much um, there, there are plenty of quotes and, and written statements and, you know, and dialogue that have taken place throughout the centuries where the United States just thought we would, we would no longer exist. You know, and, you know, look, arguably that they would somehow, you know, encompass us and, you know, and we would just be part of them. But some of it was just that we would, we would just perish. And there was a, a big effort to do that. So, yeah, you can enter into a treaty and you can use words like never, Canandaigua Treaty, the United States acknowledges that the land, the, the property talked about in, the, in that treaty, that the land is ours and they will never claim the same, nor will they ever disturb us in the free use and enjoyment of that land. So yeah, words like never and ever, but the United States never, they didn't mean it. And, and there's no question that they didn't mean it because it didn't take long before they started violating the terms of that, of that especially those expressions, that term. I mean, they, they have tried to claim our lands. I mean, even when they're trying to remove us, especially from, from the Haudenosaunee standpoint, the Seneca specifically said, okay, if we accept the funds that you're giving us for us to relocate to Kansas, how would that land be, uh, be classified? What would be the status of that land? And the United States says, well, it would be yours, and we would never claim the same. And you know that's crap. I mean, they didn't do I mean, other nations had that same promise and went, and sure enough, now and they all said they would never become a state. Oklahoma became a state. Kansas became a state. They all became states. And it wasn't because the Native people were, were wishing for it. So when we talk about decolonization, we aren't necessarily talking about a declaration of independence. I mean, it would it'd be great if we could establish that. But most of it is just trying to disassociate ourselves. And look, the reason that Native people did gaming isn't because we, we love the idea of, you know, casinos. It was about having some financial independence. So would be, we would be less dependent, which is exactly what the United States created with their policies. They wanted to create us, turn us into completely dependent. That's what they call us, domestic dependent nations, wards of the state. They, they tried to turn us, not only do they, do they term us that and tell us that and call us that, they tried to make us become that. And they were pretty successful in, in large part. Many territories did. You know, and, but when you come out of the 70s and the sovereignty movement, everything from AIM and war societies and Alcatraz takeover and the BIA takeover, all of a sudden the sovereignty movement had a different 
I mean, it had a different tone to it. I mean, this comes after the big pushes of civil rights. The sovereignty movement comes after that. And it's, and it's different. So I bring this up, and, it, and it's not about saying we're better or above or anything. Look, our fight is, is much, uh, much more challenging than fighting for civil rights. I mean, you can make a pretty good argument that all people in the United States deserve to be treated equally under their law. But what if you're not under the law? Then how do we deserve to be treated? That's, that's a bigger challenge, and that's a bigger question. Look, we're going to take some calls um, for the second half of the show, so I want people to be prepared for that. Uh, I'll, I'll give the number now, even though I'm not going to pick up the phone right away, but I'll give it now because I'm really guilty of never putting the phone number out there. And, and, and though we're not live in Washington, I'm hoping that some folks in D.C. do catch the show uh, as we air it in New York, or perhaps they're catching us on Facebook Live or, you know, or whatever, live streaming on Facebook Live, which we are doing. Um, so again, uh, let me see, what's the pledge line here? It is 212-209-2877. So that's the number that you can call to participate in the conversation. And we still have some old stuff to talk about. Any, anybody who didn't catch the show or perhaps caught the show at a different time from last week and wants to talk about any, uh, Peter DeRico being my guest or his book, Federal Anti-Indian Law, uh, we can still kick around Buffy St. Marie if we want to a little bit. She uh, earned another award recently and, you know, doubled down on her lies about being Native. Um, and, of course, you know, look, the, the mascot battle still rages it, fully, especially in the New York City or the Long Island anyway. We've got states down there sue, trying to sue the state in federal court over their right to play Indian as a part of their school uh, school experience, their grade and high school experience. Um, and now battle, battling a few schools upstate too. So um, so we can talk about any of those things. Um, uh, look, we I'll even throw a Kissinger comment in there. I mean, one <laughs> of the I got to say about Henry Kissinger, beyond that I'm glad he's dead. And I, and I am. And I don't mean, uh, this isn't about being callous or crass or anything else. Um, he was a terrible human being. And what I will say about Henry Kissinger, and it's and it's kind of emblematic of what's happening in you know in Israel and Gaza right now. It's amazing that a a person or a people who could be so oppressed in Europe, uh, you know, the, meaning the Jewish population, could become such white supremacists. I mean, it's it's incredible, and that's what Henry Kissinger was. And of course, Henry Kissinger also epitomized that that euphemism that became. Um, a, a replacement for, uh, for, for white supremacy, which I call American exceptionalism. That's one that even, even Barack Obama could, uh, could use that expression. But at the end of the day, it was really just a euphemism for white supremacy. And in everything you hear, ever heard Henry Kissinger talk about, he talks about the bigger picture and, you know, and about you know, um, righteousness from, from a, being viewed from a higher elevation, which means high enough where the, where the brown people can't be seen is what, it really, is what he's really talking about. So you wanna, we can even throw a little Henry Kissinger under the bus if we want to as, as this show progresses. So, but I, I did, you know, look, getting back on the decolonization thing, this thing gets down to not only a jurisdictional question, and, and, and we talked about that with Peter DeRico last week, and, and I've talked about it in the past. You know, jurisdiction is, is, is an interesting concept because, for, for one thing, courts cannot address issues of sovereignty. I mean, they can't because 
if you are sovereign, you are outside the, the Constitution. And courts can only deal with stuff that are inside, covered under the Constitution. That's what their jobs are, is to make sure that the law is, in, is, is either just, constitutional, or being interpreted properly. And then being interpreted under, through that constitutional lens. So if you're talking about a people like us, who were never intended to be included in the Constitution, so if we, go, if we get dragged into court, for whatever reason, civil or criminal, and we say, we're going to challenge subject matter jurisdiction. Well, you know what happens is the, the uh, prosecutor or the, the plaintiff will, will cite all of these laws that prove that they have jurisdiction over us. And, and they're going to cite laws that we had nothing to do with, like Public Law 280 or U.S. 232 or U.S. 233. And they'll cite these laws, never understanding that those laws were, were unlawful. You didn't have the authority to pass them, and you didn't have our permission. We never agreed to those things. So the idea of, of um, transferring our sovereignty or our jurisdiction to the states or to the United States, we never did that. There was never some lawful transfer of power. You just claimed it. This gets back to what Peter DeRico talked about, this authoritarian rule. And that's not constitutionally protected. There's no place in the Constitution that says the United States has unlimited authority. No, I mean, that's what monarchs were. That's what supposedly uh, the colonists fought a revolution against. I don't think that is what they fought against. They fought it to line their pockets, basically. But we'll, we'll, we'll keep with that, that other narrative because that's, that sells better in, uh, in you know, history textbooks for grade schoolers. But so this idea of jurisdiction, there's two ways to avoid the jurisdictional question. One is, for one, that we shouldn't be using their courts to solve disputes. Now, I grant it, sometimes we get sued, we get dragged into courts, you know, criminal or otherwise. So we have to defend ourselves. But if we're going to make a jurisdictional argument, if we're going to challenge the jurisdiction, it's not enough just to say it. We can't just say, we don't believe you have jurisdiction. We've got to prove it. And, and I say this because somebody asked me about this. And they said, why don't we challenge jurisdictional issues? Well, we should. But we should, we should do it more thoroughly. We should take away every argument, every law. Look, we've been fighting this, doing this thing for years. So we know if we say uh, you don't have, this court doesn't have jurisdiction, they're going to cite pre pretty much the same handful of cases they always cite. Well, we know that ultimately everything goes back to the doctrine of Christian discovery and, and that trilogy of Marshall cases back in the 1800s. So let's force it back to there so we can challenge those cases. Let's not, let's not accept this notion. I and mean, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg cites in her footnotes, uh, the do doctrine of Christian discovery. And she said, the sovereignty became vested in first the discovering nations of Europe, then the colonies and then the states. Okay, then tell me how it became vested. What was this law? What was this force of nature that stripped us of that sovereignty? Because it wasn't war. I mean, there were only conflicts, you know, 50, you know, maybe 50 or, or, or maybe 100 conflicts with Native peoples. But most of those didn't end in a surrender treaty. And there were hundreds more of us. There were, you know, seven, eight, hundred, nine hundred distinct Native peoples. We were all crushed under the, the boot of the U.S. military or the Canadian military? No. So he gets back to this, this notion that the John Marshall said in his first case, which was the uh, Johnson v. McIntosh, that this extravagant pretension of 
promoting this, this notion that discovery could be equated to conquest. You know, he talked, he calls it an extravagant pretension because he knew that it was false. He says, but if we can do it and we can sustain that claim for a long enough period of time, then it becomes true. So if we lie long enough, if we lie and say, look, we didn't have to conquer you. We only had to lay our eyes on you because we're Christians, you're not. We're human beings and you were something less than that. So once we acknowledge who you are, we own you. That's essentially what, what the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court was saying in 1823. I mean, it's an absurd proposition. But if we can make those jurisdictional challenges go all the way back to that kind of legal dicta, then if the court still rules they have jurisdiction, then, then they have to be just as outrageous as John Marshall was in 1823. They have to be just as racist as John Marshall was in 1823. So for all those people who want to say, well, yeah, but that was stuff in the past and that doesn't, you know, we're better now. We don't have slavery anymore. Yeah, but you sure have overt racism. Yeah, we're not killing native people. Yeah, but you're still, you're still taking from us our resources, our lives, our livelihoods. So yeah, there are things that were done in the past that may on certain levels been much more heinous than what's happening today. But don't for a second think that we're not still being treated as wards of the state. So I wanted to talk because I don't think when people hear words like decolonization, I don't know that it, it isn't just about finding comfort within the colonial systems. And, I, and here's the other thing. Our territories, our communities are not U.S. colonies. I live on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. It is not a U.S. colony. So... I think the first thing we have to understand uh, psychologically, mentally, is that when we talk about decolonization, we have to assert that our land is distinct. Regardless of, of even how it's titled, I mean, look, for us, we own the title to the land, and the Seneca Nation owns the title to the land here. It's not held by the state or the federal government, like it is in some places in the U.S. and Canada, where you either have the land held in trust by the Canadian government or the federal government, or in some cases, some territories where the, where the land is held in a state trust. This land, and I would argue that once we assert our presence on a land, we aren't just occupants. We don't just have the right to, you know, to live there. It's ours. So our lands are not part of the U.S. colony. We, I mean, so all that talk about colonization, we aren't Jamestown, no. We aren't Williamsburg, no. We're the Cattaraugus Territory of the Seneca Nation. So I wanted to say that out there. All right, so um, let me remind people that this is Resistance Radio. I am John Kane. I am the host. Uh, I am pleased to be heard both in New York City on WBAI and in Washington, D.C. on WPFW, as well as out as a podcast and, of course, um, broadcast on the, the websites of WPFW and uh, WBAI. I also stream the show live on Facebook. And, uh, you know, sometimes I'll take the, the video of, of this show and I'll put it up on, um, on uh, the, my YouTube channel. I do a podcast. It's called Let's Talk Native. And that one's geared a little bit more towards a Native audience. And <clears throat> so the, the, I'm not saying the tone's different. It's still me talking, ranting or whatever. But it's, it's, it's a little bit different. So, um, and I don't do that necessarily every week. <clears throat> I usually let that be driven by events, um, especially events that I don't 
necessarily cover on uh, the, the show here on, on the radio. So uh, you can, I, I've got two Facebook pages. One is called Resistance Radio and one is called Let's Talk Native. And I think they may be with John Kane. <clears throat> so you can check out my, um, both of my web, uh, my Facebook channels. Um, I do have a website, which is called letstalknative.com. Uh, and of course, my YouTube channel is Let's Talk Native TV. So uh, um, get all that stuff out of the way. So uh, I do encourage you to, um, uh, to again, to, to check out the show uh, if you've missed shows. I mean, I, I, I will admit that I probably don't have them cataloged very well. It's not like you can go back through the, you know, my archives even and see. You almost have to, you know, poke and hope because when you look at them as a podcast, oftentimes they don't have a whole lot in the title, just the date, so. Um, hey, Reggie, are we set up? Can we do calls? We can absolutely do calls at any moment, anytime. It's, uh, it's on you, sir. All right. Well, hey, uh, I missed you uh, last week. Um, so uh, yes. we're, we're here to make up for that and uh, get a couple of weeks in before we take another break. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, you know, again, I'm not going to do the whole Thanksgiving thing, but I am grateful for <laughs> uh, for you accompanying me on the program the way that you do. Oftentimes, I don't have a co-host, but you're you're pretty close to that. So I'm, on some occasions, oh, so, well, I appreciate so I, that. I appreciate that too. All right, so anytime the number to call to uh, to ask me a question, to engage me in uh, in a conversation, and look. And I do encourage there to be a bit of a conversation. I don't want one caller to call in and take up the rest of the show necessarily. So if you do have a, um, you know, a comment or a question, perhaps we can, you know, get it, you know, all, you know, perhaps we can, we can fit more than just one caller in. But the, the number to call is 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. That's the number to call to be, um, uh, to be a part of the show. To you know, to uh, ask questions, to have conversation, and um, you know, uh, pretty much on any subject you want to talk about, any subject you want to talk about. So, so there we have it. Um, Reg, let me know if any, if uh, anybody uh, dials in, and we'll go right to of a call. Of course, no problem. Okay, all right. So, um, uh, of course, oftentimes it's hard with such crazy events going on in the world to grab anybody's attention on things like. Like native issues. I mean, look, you you got you know killing going on in in the Ukraine. You in Ukraine, you've got killing in Gaza. You've got uh, who's the crazy guy there? Uh, Santos. Your your <laughs> yeah, that George Santos. That guy. You, you got crazy people in politics. So you've got uh, a crazy man running for president. You've got an old decrepit guy running for uh, for president. So look, there's a lot of other things to talk about, and and I and I realize that. So. You know, sometimes when I'm bringing up a, a subject, you look, when we get a boost in attention because of things like the, the film, the Scorsese film, Killers of the Flower Moon, or the book by David Grant of the same name, you know, it it's oftentimes does give us an opportunity to have a conversation. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, those, those fade out fast. And I'm not saying that people are still aren't going out to see the film, which I do encourage people to go see the film. Uh, you know, I, I have some issues with the way the film was... Um, was port portrayed the events of the uh, the Osage murders, but it still at least makes people so familiar with the fact that something did happen there, you know. But the, the one thing I'll always say is that you got to remember that there were a lot more murders than the ones that they're covering in that in that film or the ones that were you know investigated or prosecuted. So, um, so I'll just I'll just leave it at that. But uh, you know, it is it oftentimes is good 
when we see a reservation dogs become, you know, so um, successful on, on streaming services or, or any, and any number of films that have, you know, featured either native casts or, you know, had some native crea creativity participating in the, um, in the production. But, um, and, and that gives us an opportunity to talk about not just native issues, but um, broader issues. And perhaps as I always try to advocate here, a perspective from native from a, a native viewpoint. So there's that. Again, the number to call is uh, is 212 209-2877. Uh, and that's the number to call to be a part of the, the program. Um, uh, again, I was off in New York last week, uh, but I was on in, in Washington. So I um, I did do a show last week. It featured Peter DeRico, the author of Federal Anti-Indian Law. Uh, it was a great program. And I think I think if you listen to it, you can learn things through um, through the way Peter presents the issues, which is certainly different than the way I do. He's a lawyer, and you know I'm just a a native guy on the reservation. So, so. <laughs> all right, we got anybody lined up yet? Oh, the synergy is to, is tight and right. You have called. You have responded to me just in time. All right, you got callers. All right, we'll go to the first caller. Caller, what's your name? And I'm just asking for your first name and where you're calling from. And this is just to be sociable. I'm not going to stalk you, I promise. All right, we'll go to the first caller. <laughs> All right, I'm not hearing very good. Dial them in a little bit there. Can you hear me better now? Yeah, if you don't, don't make sure your radio's off so you don't, we, we don't get feedback. Okay. Um, I usually... Yeah, it's, it's always tough because usually when people make the phone call, they're away from the radio. So, <laughs> so. yeah, I apologize, John. Yeah, Daryl, you know, you know better. You yes, know you know better, better Daryl. I know, I know. <laughs> All right, Daryl, what's going on? What, what's your what's your thoughts or what's your question? Is there a hope? Especially since I'm learning about more and more, I use the word nation, or uh, rather than other words. Yeah, like tribes. That I hate that word, the tribes. Sovereignty movement, yeah, because uh, that whole the nation thing isn't working for me either. Um, is there any way that 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 the sovereignty issue can be can be uh, made much more popular and much more clear? Because what I'm what I'm understanding now is. At the same, the the period between let's say, eighteen seventy through today, the stripping away of sovereignty, the um, the reliance on the kindness of the American government uh, to do anything, without uh, Americans understanding what treaties are, what relationships are. We need, we need some education here that will encompass all the, uh, all the negatives that we're having to a people at the same time. Well, because, you know, it's interesting because even with the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which spells out a lot of the atrocities that Indigenous people have experienced, but it really stays completely away from issues of sovereignty. In fact, the word sovereignty is only mentioned or sovereign is only mentioned in the declaration once. And it wasn't talking about us. What it was talking about is that was nothing in that declaration was intended to infringe upon the sovereignty of the settler states. 
So, so even though it talks about much of the, the, the you know, many of the issues that Native people face, and they do call out that the Declaration is the minimum standard for dignity and survival, and it does call out the need or the requirement from an international law standpoint that nations get free prior and informed consent from indigenous peoples. Essentially, you know, as far as the, the declaration is concerned, we should have veto power on the things that they try to legislate over us. But no, none of the nations follow that. And the United States not only did, voted against it, but even when Obama was the president and, and took kind of a tepid stance in a movement towards that declaration, he basically, you know, they did one of his typical word salads and said, well, um, we're going to support and, and acknowledge the aspirations of the agreement, provided that it doesn't uh, conflict with the U.S. and, uh, and our U.S. law and our Constitution, which is which is to say we're going to keep doing with everything that we've been doing. <laughs> In fact, he took that notion of free prior and informed consent. He says, well, we don't we are going to require consultation with with indigenous peoples. Not consent, consultations. So all they got to do is set, set our asses down in a room and say they talk to us, and then, then they can check their box, and they say, okay, we, we, we did that then. So, so that's, therein lies part of the problem. Even when we do get an international document like that, and, and, and even as we slowly bring you know, the, the, the four nations who voted against it to the table on it, they, they, won't, they won't really honor it. And so, so it's tough. I mean, the biggest issue is what can we do internationally? One of the reasons that, that I support the fight that the, that the um, Native Hawaiians are, are pushing for the Hawaiian kingdom is I think that they could be precedent setting because their legal arguments are pretty concise and pretty consistent. And the thing about Hawaii was Hawaii was recognized internationally as a sovereign state in the, in the, in the mid-1800s. So when the United States essentially does this coup, this illegal coup against Hawaii, the, uh, all the other nations, European nations, that they, they even had embassies in Europe. There were embassies all over the world, Hawaiian embassies and, and, and consulates. So I just think that if Hawaii can be successful in, um, in pushing for restoration of the Hawaiian kingdom, um, you know, I think their arguments are much the same as ours, but I think they have, because of the international recognition that they had before the United States did what they did. What they did. I mean, look, the world knew who we were as indigenous people. I mean, maybe not individually necessarily in every individual nation, but they knew that we existed and they, and they all turned their heads. I mean, that's, that's the way slavery and, and, you know, the sacking of, um, Africa and Australia and India, parts of Asia and, you know, and the Western Hemisphere, that's all because European, you know, they, they all approve that stuff. So, look, I mean, it sounds pretty um, bleak when we, when we talk about trying to assert sovereignty. But I think the more we talk about it, the more we educate people about how much the United States has lied to them about things like rule of law and constitutionality and all that other stuff, I think the stronger case we have. And, you know, and look, my hope is that my grandkids are, can move the ball a little farther than we did. I think my generation moved it. I think clearly coming out of the 70s and the 80s, we, we advanced Native sovereignty in ways that was never done before that, or at least not, you know, since our sovereignty was first attacked. So, you know, if we can lay some of that groundwork and, and really try like hell not to encourage our people to buy into the, the, to the promises that they, uh, that they keep getting made, 
then, uh, you know, there's, there's always hope. So I don't know if that answers your, or your complete question, but that's my view anyway. Well, without, without the, without the, the indigenous nations rising up against, uh, let me say it this way, asserting their, their, their sovereignty, where are the rest of us going to go when we need protection? Well, unfortunately, and, if you're an American, and, and, you're 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 bound by the protections of the system, and 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 unfortunately, it's not there's not much protection there. But that's why I I brought up the distinction between our fight for sovereignty versus the fight for civil rights. Because look, an American, regardless of how you became one, and and I argue that we are not, but an American is is afforded legal protections within that constitution. They may not be getting it, but it's written that way. So. I mean, I think your reliance has to come more so from within the system rather than from outside the system. Oh, thanks, John. Okay. <laughs> well, it's not like we haven't supported. I, I, I mean, look, many people have supported the civil rights movement. I don't want to make it sound like, sorry, you're on your well, own. Forget the civil rights. The civil rights movement was was insane to begin with. Huh? People are talking about right now. Oh, the movement of fascism. I've lived under fascism my whole life. Yeah, yes, I, you have. Never been a, a, there's never been a fair and free election in this country. Nope. So all that fairy tale stuff goes right out the window once you start understanding the history. Okay. So now, if the history is is that there was a people who own oh, no rephrase, there was a people who lived on the land and had a different relationship than the Europeans had with the land, and that even people of African descent who were enslaved here adopted or are continuing to adopt the European relationship to the land rather than, rather than, to give the phrase, indigenous relationship to the land, you're going to have zero human beings here. The land is just fine. The land will make adjustments. Humans aren't going to be able to make that adjustment because they've slept in their crap too long. Well, and I got to tell you, I'm, you, I'm glad you bring up what you bring up, because one of the things I think people know very little about, because I and I am among those people who knew very little about it. When I, when I learned about things like, you know, Black Wall Street and, and some of, you know, what turns out to be a whole host of black um, towns in Oklahoma, especially that that got carved out of Indian country. And that was an effort for by the United States to both the United States and the the newly freed slaves that were held even by by some of the native people to establish them in these towns in what essentially for all intents and purposes was Indian country. So, and you know, and again, but then when white people started showing up, all of a sudden the the pressure became to turn those those uh, Indian country into states. So it's interesting because there was a time where black people had gotten significant shelter from from native people. Uh, against you know against racism and uh, and oppression from from whites. Look, Daryl, I do want to. I, I appreciate the call. This is a whole show all by itself, and I promise we will do one. But I will say that um, uh, you know we will we will we will cover this more thoroughly. But I but I'd like to see if, there's a, if perhaps another caller would like to try to get a word in here. So I appreciate the call. I appreciate the subject matter. It was great. All right, okay. Reggie, do we have another caller on the line? Yes, we do. All right, let's go Hello. ahead and go to another caller. Hi. That was Daryl. Who do we have this time? John, can you hear me? Yes. Yep. 
No, I, I was just uh, saying, uh, Sean from Queens. Oh, oh, Sean. Well, good to hear. But you do need to speak up because your voice is really quiet here. Try to speak as much as you can. What's your, what's on your mind? I was just going to ask you about... Uh, can you hear me clearly, Doc? Yeah, yeah go ahead. Better? Yep. All right, great. Um, I just, uh, you mentioned a comment about Henry Kissinger, and I was just uh, uh, a little curious more about Henry Kissinger. I don't know a lot about him, uh, but I do know he had some racist policies against... Uh, um, I guess, uh, non-Anglo-Saxon uh, ethnicities, um, China, the Middle East, uh, the Native Americans in, um, in the U.S. South America, Ch so, Chile, uh, Argentina, yep. <laughs> South America, right. So I was just hoping you could maybe educate me a little bit more about his policies and how his policies uh, screwed up the world. Um, I think he was involved in some and stuff in Africa, but uh, the, the information that I have is so uh, sparse and kind of like separated from others. There's very little content. Well, little let me let me just say this about Henry Kissinger. He was probably the most prominent um, person advancing this idea of America first. And if you're going to promote this notion of America first, you mean America first at the expense of somebody else. And in every case and everything that he and look, he may have been, you know, uh, only with a couple of uh, presidential administrations, but he officially. But he has been advising presidents, especially Republican presidents, but not only Republican presidents either. I think he was even involved with, with the Clintons at some point. I mean, this but he had such you know, such a high regard for, uh, you know, American exceptionalism that in the end, he always said, you got to look at it again from a higher view. Was it worth it? Was it worth killing off people of, of color? Was it worth, you know, uh, bombing Cambodia? Was it worth bombing, you know, North Vietnam? Was it worth, you know, doing a coup in Chile? I mean, in the, and what he tries to always do is say, well, the, the ends justifies the means. And that is that is a terrible um, precedent to have established. And yet, even the current president today is is still praising Henry Kissinger. He said he talked to him a couple of months ago. <laughs> Anthony Blinken talked about uh, about talking and consulting with the, with Henry Kissinger. So he has been such a, a principal figure in American policy, foreign policy, not so much domestic, but foreign policy that it's that almost every atrocity that the United States has been involved in has got a little bit of, uh, you know, Kissinger sweat on it. So that's, that's what I can say about Henry Kissinger in, in a nutshell, I guess. And I'm not an authority. I'm, there are, there are probably better shows to talk about Henry Kissinger than me, but, uh, but that's the way. And, you know, look, I, I am, you know, a you, bit thumbnailed, of a, you yeah. thumbnailed it. You thumbnailed it. You thumbnailed it. I'm a bit of a, a history nerd. So I follow this stuff. So, but I appreciate yeah. the call, Sean. Let's see if we can fit one more in uh, Reggie before we go. If there's another caller there. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're right here. All right, let's go. Caller, you're up next. Please speak clearly and loudly. Make sure your radio's off and uh, give me your name and where you're calling from. You're up next caller. Oh, I think, are they gone? Oh, I think they're gone. All right. Sorry. Oh, well, well, you know, it, it's just one of the things about doing a talk show where you, you accept callers. You got to hope that uh, people have patience because it, it is tough. And look, I hate to shut to cut a a caller short, uh, especially you know Daryl had a had a great conversation going there. But uh, you know, it's hard to do a, a call in show if you give 
only one yeah. or two callers a chance. Is there any anybody left there? Is there anybody to grab onto? Nah, I think that's okay. uh, John. I think that's a wrap. All right. Well, look, I want to thank you guys for listening. And like I said, I, I do want to encourage you to catch last week's show if you didn't, especially in New York, because I don't think we were, we weren't on WBAI. But um, but the show's up there. If you if you look for Resistance Radio with John Kane, you can find it as a podcast. Uh, you can look on my uh, Facebook page, which is Resistance Radio, and you can find last week's episode as a as a Facebook live stream. Uh, I, I I would appreciate if you if you give the time to you know to give that one a listen. I think it's a it was a bit of a special show having uh, my friend Peter Dorigo joining me. But um, look, we're we're closing out this year, so all I can say is look if if people are going to look at this this next season as a season of giving. I hope people remember to give generously to WBAI and WPFW. Um, that's look without them. I'm not on the radio and, you know, and look, I can still do podcasts and that kind of stuff, but to be on the radio in New York city and Washington DC, especially with my messaging, my messaging that is, that is really taking, uh, you know, that putting New York state in the crosshairs, there's no better place to do that for, you know, Albany's fine, but New York city is where the power is. And the same thing with the federal government, the idea that I can, that, that I can, you know, target an audience in Washington, DC and, and, uh, in New York city is, uh, is a great opportunity for me, but it's only an opportunity that exists if you support WBAI and WPFW. So final note, the, the pledge line for WBAI is two one two two zero nine. 2950. Their website is give to WBAI.org. WPFW, the pledge line is 202-588-9739. And their website is WPFWFM.org slash donate, or just go to their page and you can follow the tabs, uh, the buttons to, to donate. I appreciate you you guys joining me. I appreciate the callers calling in. Sorry we didn't get to uh, that last caller. Um, we'll, we'll do more of this. I, I do really like taking the calls, especially when I don't have a guest because um, yeah, it allows me, gives me somebody to talk to. <laughs> All right. I want to thank you for listening. I'm John Kane, and this is Resistance Radio. Yahweh. <laughs>